Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, the J10 Initiative. And we're... What day is it? <laughs> what day are we podcasting this? Um, I think this is coming out uh, around the 1st. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. All right. Hey, uh, welcome to the podcast, Father John. Father Nathan. But I don't... Now Catholic that we know stuff. that it's Christmas, we can we can rejoice. Catholic Stuff Podcast at gmail.com into the Christmas season, though we are still... We're recording on the 21st of December, so we're still True. kind of uh, slowly making our way there. We've already started drinking Christmas ale. We have. I bought a... Uh, what do you call those? Pony keg? Baby yeah. keg? Yeah, it's like it's a kitchen, uh, refrigerator keg. Yeah, it's a nice little refrigerator keg. Of it's about the size of like a gallon of beer. Breckenridge Brewery makes a Christmas ale. and uh, We haven't had it. The Gobo was a bit surprised that I sprung for the uh, little baby keg. I thought it was an edgy pick. It's a festive choice. I said, I said, have you had that ale before? And he's like, no. I'm like, okay, well. Sucker for holiday shopping. I got sent to the uh, grocery store with a very long list, um, including obscure kinds of peanut butter, very selective sunflower s- butter tastes of Ensure, um, yes. specific flavors of Lacroix, kettle chips. Um, you haven't even gotten to what I requested. <laughs> organic yet. fruits, pickles from Costco, which didn't happen. It was a it was very scary. I had to just kind of do some breathing exercises in the parking lot. Kind of came into the store. Fortunately, the uh, employees of King Supers were super friendly. I don't know if... We got out of there rather unscathed. I got everything except for one. That's true, the blood oranges. Blood oranges were gone. Those are tasty. Yeah. Um, Yes. Sometimes uh, with my former parochial vicar who didn't like shopping, I would pick random things for him to purchase just because I knew it would be difficult for him to find. And I could find it easier, but I wanted him to, to see, like, shopping is not as easy as buying what you know. Every good father chastises his son. Right? Agreed. Isn't that from the Proverbs? Yes. Every well, good pastor chastises the members of his household. Hebrews, yeah. Anywho. So I was in a festive spirit going through King Supers and saw the little pony keg or whatever. It's not a pony keg. That, you bought that at King Supers? Yeah. So that's on that receipt list? No, I paid for that. Don't you worry. You don't have to fight that out with your business manager. Justify so. it to my to my parish. No, no. No, you don't. Well, welcome to the podcast. So we're coming up on uh, the 11th anniversary. This is, uh, by the time this comes out, can you believe it? 11 years. Last year, we and we had quite the party. Grateful for all of you who uh, came out, especially out-of-staters. We That was just the... That was a highlight, and that was like the last big thing I did before the world collapsed. Pretty much. With COVID. Yep. Right? We had yeah. a killer party, and then it was just like, here we go. Yeah, and then there was a party killer. And then a party killer. Yep, that was pretty much it. And it's been COVID land ever since. So, What is the 11th anniversary? 10th is wood, right? I have no idea. I doubt it's anything. Every, asbestos, maybe. Yeah, asbestos <laughs> is what we're dealing with right now at the Companion's House. Did I you know. know that? Yeah, it's terrible. Good night. Yep, the joys of home ownership, right? Which... Agreed. And we didn't really know about, but um, I guess that's what happens when you move into a house that's 125 years old. There's going to be some surprises in there. So I've been out for the semester. Guys are finished. We finished strong. Um, They're probably blasting me right now on course evals because the the exams were a little harder than they should have been. So my apologies to the boys, but they did a great job. They finished well. And... um, yeah, we got through a, a kind of a bizarre semester, as everybody did, and uh, now it's living the sweet life here, sweet koinonia at the Schloss, so mm-hmm. as we're rolling into Christmas. I've got kind of a depressing topic, though. I hate to say that. I'm happy we're into the new year. That's so. funny, because I, uh, I almost did a depressing topic last time, but we didn't want to follow it up. I would say maybe not depressing. It's just sobering. 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 If you're ready for it. If you're if you're consuming your Christmas ale right now, you know, maybe you need to switch to to uh, black Tequila. black tea or something. Yeah, exactly. Well, what well, first thing I just want to say is hopefully people got a gift that they are still enjoying, you know. Mm. We were talking to uh Father Chris and uh he said he got two gifts uh that he still uses from his high school days. One of them was his lacrosse stick, which wasn't really a gift, it's just he used to play lacrosse. He still uses it. Lax but, bro. Uh, lax bro. And then uh, he got a rice cooker 
for his high school graduation gift, and he still uses it. He's 30, no, he's 20, what, 28? We used it last night. We still use it. But, I mean, I don't know if people try to get gifts like that for Christmas, where it's like, let's get them something that they'll continue to use for a long time. And sometimes it's actually even cheap things. And I'm looking right now, and I don't know if this is cheap, but we got these dinosaur so, coasters. Years ago. Years ago. They were at my house they beforehand. Were, yeah. And they have been on the uh, podcasting table uh, since then. So whoever got us the dinosaur, the blue dinosaur uh, coasters, I'm very appreciative. Some things last. The Starburst bag that was there since like yeah, the Starburst, 2015. The Starburst bag has been here since since uh, Olo was here, <laughs> and Olo left in what February last year. Yeah, that needs to probably go away. So, yeah, it is true though. I mean, there I feel like a very small percentage of the populace are gift givers. Those people who just they're amazingly thoughtful and they mm-hmm. just give. They anticipate needs. They give these great gifts. I'm more of the kind of one in five years kind of thing. Yeah. If you knock it out of the park, I remember my mom. I in these cowboy boots. We were walking through Boulder one time. Yep. You, you remember that? You told the story. Ah, damn. Last okay. time I was on there. On the podcast? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've heard I was it. still riding the dream. This is the... Uh, the <laughs> so. so anyways, I, uh, I think that, you know... The cowboy boots. But I would never think to buy somebody a rice cooker. A senior in high school, I would never think to do that. And literally, he's used that for, I don't know, whatever, how old he is. Yeah. Like, 10 years. So far, the front runner this year was uh, uh, Jordan and Brenna Marvel, who got me and Father Chris both meat thermometers, ah. uh, which is a very helpful gift, uh, considering my other one I don't think is is operating to its full potential. Yeah. So, anywho. Priests but, are well taken care of in the parish. I've, I, I'm reminded what it's like to be a parish priest again, coming back here and seeing the piles and piles of of sweets that we have on the island in Schloss Goebbels. It's and I told, formidable. I told Father Chris, tell them you're gluten-free. Tell them, because they're going to get all these cookies and everything, and they're not going to know. And he's like, oh, I've said it before. I'm like, no, reiterate it. Sure enough, somebody shows up with a pumpkin cheesecake. Well, that's his fault, because he, he if you mention pumpkin cheesecake in a homily, right. you're going to get a pumpkin cheesecake. That's true. That's why I try to mention only things that I really, really like. Bourbon, bourbon, sushi, fly yeah. fishing. Yeah, we we instructed Nick Saban. We, we instructed the young uh, parochial vicar last night. Corrected fraternal correction to say, whenever you say start a homily with, you know what reminds me of the spirit of Christmas? It's bourbon, right? Right. It's not pumpcake, pumpkin D- cheesecake. Yeah, don't say don't say pumpkin cheesecake. Not a good idea. Yeah, it's Pappy Van Winkle. Yep. So. We're eating our way through the rest of December, eating our way through the rest of 2020, and working for the weekends. That reminds me. I got to load in my weight from this morning. Oh, geez. We're trending up, folks. <laughs> We're trending up. Good night. All right. I'm going to dive into it. Here we yeah, go. Yeah, go ahead. You ready? I just need to add this. All right. That's helpful. That is funny. Gained two pounds since the last time I loaded. Go ahead. So the uh, topic for today is called Sacramentalized Nonverts. And you're supposed to say, wow, what an intriguing, fascinating statement that is. Where did you get that? Unconverted nonverts? Sacramentalized nonverts. Oh, yeah. So sacramentalized, not evangelized. Yeah, d- slightly. That's the beginning, but it's different. So, well, let's, Yeah, let's roll with it. I'm here down. we go. So um, let's step into a, we'll start by going into a um, religious education classroom. Let's say it's St. Joan of Arc Parish or any parish in the Western United States. Um, and let's say there's five kids in a class. Fast forward 20 years. Five? Five. Just say there's five for right now um, for, because of my numbers. Uh, where are those kids going to end up? These are kids that... Jail. Well... Dead. <laughs> um, this is... a. Uh, more of a question of religious, oh, okay. Kind of, you know. I would tell say, us. I would say, two. Just off the top of my head, two out of five are uh, maybe practicing. Uh, three out of five are not practicing. One out of five. Uh, I mean, one out of those two is actually going to be uh, more like Sunday mass going. But I would say it's rare. 
So the uh, yeah, that's that's good. It's actually uh, slightly worse than that, but what I um, but pretty pretty close. The the basic number we want to start with is thirty four percent of American cradle Catholics no longer identify as Catholics. They are called disaffiliated. Okay, so we have to introduce a new category here. We're used to talking about lapsed Catholics, right? So non-practicing Catholics, they're going to show up at um, Mass, you know, maybe on Christmas, or not at all. I call them the in-laws. The in-laws. Outlaws. They're going to show up, they're going to show up, uh, demand special treatment, use the bathroom, and take up a seat, and then leave. They're not going to be there for most of the meals throughout the year. Sounds like uh, priests who join your household on breaks. True. (laughs) So don't get me started. Thirty-four percent of it, one in three American Catholics are disaffiliating from the Catholic faith by the time they turn, uh, by the time they come into college. So that's a that's a pretty um, devastating number. We're not retaining Catholics here, and not only are we not retaining them, uh, it's not that they're not practicing; they're disaffiliating, which means that they're they are completely um, not they're not identifying as Catholic whatsoever. There's no connection. They're severing separation whatsoever. Um, they're going through a process that we could call deconversion, okay? So go back to that classroom of kids, one in three. All right, so if you got five kids in a classroom, here's how the numbers play out. One of those kids is going to become a non, which means he's totally disaffiliated, not just from the Catholic Church, but from religion at all. On the question of what is your religion, he, yep. questions, he, he checks none, mm-hmm. non. Okay, I think I would know in my in my religious ed classroom. I know I have these people in mind. Right, I, I know who would say that, like people that I was in high school religious ed with. Right, right. Yep. So that's that's one of the five right now. Um, one of the five is also disaffiliates from the Catholic faith and becomes probably an evangelical, some some kind of other religion. Yep. So they they switch. Yep. They I don't become nuns. They switch to another religion. Yep. That's true. Uh, two of them are basically going to be lapsed Catholics. So if you ask them, are you Catholic? Yeah. yeah. I'm Catholic, yep. you know. Yep. And they might even drop, yeah, Father Nathan, great guy, love that guy. And they might even know who you are, but they're not practicing. And then maybe one of the five is practicing. Like, probably not one in five, but maybe one in five. Yep. That was the numbers 20 years ago when we were in religious education. Uh-oh. So now we don't even know what they are. This is because all because what we know is you know what we the millennial generation right now. But the there's this kind of trajectory that's exponential around, especially on religious nons. That's really scary. Um, so again, right now, one in three Catholics in the United States are disaffiliating from the church, either becoming nons or becoming evangelical, some other Christianity. One in two are in the Western United States. So our demographics out here are even more secular because hmm. there's no kind of cultural basis. It's not True. to say it's particularly yeah. better, but... Religious, uh, religious like Catholic schools, major Catholic schools, major Catholic neighborhoods. No, there's not. There's East no, Coast. There's nothing like that. So, yeah, right. so one in two, so half of your kids in religious education right now, 20 years ago, are disaffiliated from the Catholic faith, right? So... Um, and you're saying, where are you getting these numbers from? I'm getting these numbers from a, a, a book called Mass Exodus, M-A-S-S, Mass Exodus, Catholic Disaffiliation in Britain and America Since Vatican II. This is written by a British theologian and statistician named Stephen Bullivant. And this is a really Bullivant. good... Bullivant. This is a very good, um, a very sobering sociological study that anybody who's actually wants to think seriously about the state of the church has to read. And I would encourage those on our leadership team here in the Archdiocese of Denver, moving us from maintenance to mission. Leadership. Goebbels on that uh, team. I would say this uh, certainly involves you. The sad thing is only one of them listen. Two of them disaffiliate from the podcast. One of them will be hooked to drugs in the next three years. One of them will listen to Mike Schmitz. He'll switch. That's right. (laughs) The only one that actually listens is our I love uh, it. new friend Brenda Canella. Brenda, the one faithful one. So so let's just like recap this. Like the reason it's getting when I was talking about the exponential numbers going up and up, uh, the percentage of nons under the age of thirty is has risen to forty percent. And among Catholic youth it's at fifty percent. What is it fifty percent again? 
the percentage of nons yeah. under the age of 30. Yeah, it makes sense. So we can say five, 20 years ago when we went through kind of the early millennial generation, we got this whole kind of five kids in the religious ed classroom thing. One's a non, one's an evangelical, two are lapsed Catholics, and maybe one is practicing. Um, now it's it's really, it's a lot worse. 40% nationally, 50% of Catholic youth are nons. So Catholics are disaffiliating and becoming nons in a way that is uh, really kind of crazy. So if you look at the numbers 50 years ago, 1970, um, 5% of Americans would talk about themselves as nons, no religion. Early 1990s, it was 6%. So 20 years, in 20 years, you have only a 1% gain in this kind of non, non-sphere, you could call it. Yeah. And then today it's at 25%. So but, one in four Americans yeah. are nons. Mm-hmm. And, and then if you look at the, the younger generation, 40% under the age of 30 are nons and mm-hmm. 50% mm-hmm. Um, are, are 50% of Catholics under the age of 30 are nons. So when I talk about sacramentalized nonverts, what I'm referring to, nonverts are people who convert from religious upbringing to become nons, and sacramentalized being the kids that we're spending hours and hours our entire lives, really, as priests, dispensing sacraments to. We baptize them. We confirm them. We give them first confession, first communion, 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 over and over and over and over again. Maybe we even do their weddings, but they're th- likely by the time they get into college, they're sacramentalized and they've converted to become nons. They're sacramentalized nonverts. This is what we're producing in the church, and somebody has to stop and say, "Is this really worth it?" And I, in fundamental theology, I have a great opportunity with the guys to say, "Do you want to spend the rest of your life sacramentalizing nonverts? Because that's what you're going to do, unless we change the way that we're thinking." and the way that we're living as a church. So again, not the most exciting topic, but I think a really important one to be talking Mm -hmm. about. Yeah, and I would say some of that is you may not be able to change the kind of persons that you are going to serve in your first year of priesthood. But hopefully by your 30th, 40th year of priesthood, it's going to be different. The reason why I say that is the word from Scripture is they go out, they go out full of tears, carrying seed for the sowing. They come back, they come back full of song, carrying their sheaves. So you don't you don't get to choose when you get to sow or how you get to sow. And even St. Paul says some of us sow and others, others reap and whatever. And I would just say like, I don't want to get to 40 years into the priesthood and have the same problems that we're having right now. And I'm not blaming the older guys. I think that many of them made tremendous strides to get us to where we are now. But I would say there is a new wave of men that have to get over the the hump of ordination and actually say, this is what I'm going to be about. And also parents, too. I mean, I I wish that parents felt the same disgust that we did, which is most of the kids that I'm serving in religious ed, because it's actually our parents that are teaching religious ed, not priests, uh, they're they're feeling like these parents don't go to mass. Right. And I didn't didn't ask those guys to, like, shame them as future priests, because guess what the single most important measurable factor is for retention of Catholic faith? Fathers who go to mass. The religious and spiritual lives of... The faith, commitments, and practice of the parents. And I would say more so the fathers. It is more so the father. Yeah. I, I had those numbers here somewhere. I, and, it, and it's not that it's not that women don't matter. Uh, it's, it's both parents, obviously. Uh, but if the father, the studies have shown that if the father practices his faith, his children are more apt to practice the faith. As well as if the father sings, the children are more apt to sing. Because it doesn't look like a, a feminine activity. Religion doesn't just look like it's a a, a lady's uh, whatever uh, extracurricular. Yeah, I think that's true. I think there's a loss of the authentically masculine in the church. Um, and then also it's what Robert Barron calls a beige Catholicism. 
you know, mm-hmm. um, this overriding concern. This is what um, this Boulevant talks about. Overriding concern of teachers, nuns, and priests who formed my generation. This is what Barron actually said. Yeah, sorry. Barron talking about beige Catholicism. This is what he says. It seemed to be an overriding concern of the teachers, nuns, and priests who formed my generation to make our Catholicism as non-threatening, accessible, culturally appealing as possible. It seemed as though the project was to translate uniquely Catholic doctrine, practice, and style into the forms acceptable to the environment, environing culture, always downplaying whatever might be construed as odd or supernatural. Be still. Be still. Our good friend Joe McGill, <laughs> Deacon Joe McGill, I, I have a coffee mug. Somebody has a coffee mug that says, be still and know that I am God, and he tells the story of this spiritual retreat he was on where the guy just said that but he took one word off each time be still and know that i am god be still <laughs> and I he goes that i, I am, am. <laughs> which is funny because my uh i remember going into my uh, religious ed classroom and we listened to whale sounds <laughs> and made our bodies uh unrelaxed and at the end of it she said that's prayer. And I'm like, what? Like what are you, what are you talking about? Like that was not prayer. That was like a that was like a self-soothing exercise. Um and even as a kid I was like, I I I think there's something more to this cuz I actually look at the holiness of my grandparents and think they were not like listening to whale sounds <laughs> and just like l- making their bodies limp. It's like what the heck? And she was a good teacher, don't get me wrong. But uh, that point of the exercise, I was like, there's got to be more. Right. What is distinctive about being Catholic, right? What is the book you're reading by, uh, um, what's his name? Jusani, or I mean, uh, Albacete. Albacete. That'll be another podcast coming up. Sweet. What is, uh, what is Christian and Christianity? Right. It's great. I, the, if you get a chance before the podcast, if folks want to look up the eulogy Oh yeah, that, amazing uh, Bishop, um, Cardinal in Boston. Yeah, O'Malley, so good. The, I was like laughing out loud. I was too, and it's like that's what I hope that somebody's able to do late in life. That it's like, please make sure like that that I it's still about the 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 life of Christianity and not just like sad sorry doctrine or something. That line about John Paul II making fun of Albacete for not responding to his letters. Yes, I was like, this is the best. Oh man. Well, speaking of Giassani, um, anybody who's interested in this topic uh, realizes that um, we have a real educational problem here on our hands. That was Giassani's brilliance as an educator, as a pedagogue, was to say um, this is a problem of method. So it's the 1950s. Giassani is teaching in um, Catholic schools or in in public schools, and he says— there's three things that he notices, three factors among Italian high school students. This is in the 1950s. He's teaching in public school? Yeah. Huh. That's what he did. He's like, I want to go out, and, and they, they got him into the public school. It was amazing. Into a classical school, but it wasn't Catholic. He says, number one, there's no profound motivation for belief. Number two, faith is, was irrelevant to social behavior. And number three, there was a general climate that favored skepticism. So no profound motivation for belief. It's socially irrelevant, and it's... There, the climate is skepticism, and he says this is this is what kids, this is high school kids in the 1950s, and he's seeing and he says we have to change the way that we are approaching and forming them in light of these circumstances. And now it's like again exponentially worse. Cliff. But this is a, yep. he was prophetic. Giassani saw this because the churches were full, all the numbers were good, the ACA was hit. The Archbishop's Catholic, everything was oh, yeah. perfect. Yep. Everything looked great. All of our numbers. And the problem is we're still using the same numbers that they were using in the 1950s, and we still kind of managed to kind of say, oh, well, that's not that bad. We're not as bad as those guys next door, right? But it's like we have to honestly think, uh, how do we actually re- get around this? The problem lay, as he said, Giassani says, in the method of transmitting and developing the contents of the Christian tradition. This involves the home. This should convict parents deeply. Um, this involves parish life, but it doesn't just fall on the priest. The number one reason why uh, kids retain the Catholic faith is not good homilies, and it's not really relevant and interesting music. It's the the life of the parents, right? It's the faith of the parents. Homilies help. Good liturgy helps, but it's not the number one reason, according to this survey. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I might pivot then my topic the next time, and we'll stay on this because I wanted to, I wanted to do a topic on education at a future date. But now it's like, well, maybe we do this according to Albacetti because um, he gives a critique of this book that uh, this guy wrote in the nineteen seventies, um, and uh, part of what he says I think is really interesting related to this topic that it doesn't. It's true; it doesn't just fall to the church, but there are other factors at play. I think that's important. Mm-hmm. So my question for you is, as a man whose life is given to the sacraments, when I give these numbers and I talk about sacramentalized nonverts, mm-hmm. which is what you're producing out of Joan of Arc, mm-hmm. yep. not by any fault of your own. Some, yeah, I, I bear some responsibility. What do, you, what do you make of that? Because the problem, I mean, it's... It, it's easy for me to sit back and theorize about this, but as a pastor, as a man who's, you know, you're hearing first confessions of half of these kids are, are going to be more than half of them. But the kids you're hearing first confessions of this year, and I heard some of them with you, more than half of them are going to be nons, statistically. I mean, just what do you do with that? I mean, it, mm-hmm. I don't know. The numbers are so intense and so and so devastating, that. but I, I'm just curious, like, how does that strike you? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Father Hellstrom, one of the priests that I live with, um, he said that oftentimes at certain celebrations, like First Communions or Confirmations, if you look out and there is more than 10% of the people practicing, that's actually a good statistic. Like, you feel good that there's more than 10% of the people out in the pews are are practicing. Um, I had one first confirmation, or confirmation first communion, where I would say that 70 to 80% of the people were practicing, and that that mass flowed in a totally different way than the other one, where I would say less than 20% of the people were actively practicing. Um, so how do I feel about that? Um, it is sobering, um, it is challenging, it's frightening, um, and in the same way, it's like the ground is hard, and I'm called to bear bear fruit. So I I, I got to till, I got to sow, I got to tend, I got to hope for some you know seed for next year, you know, and then you replant and do it again. Like I don't I don't have a program. Yeah. And I actually have a natural allergy to programs that say, like, I got an email from Flocknote the other day. Nothing against Flocknote. It's a tool, fine. But it's like, increase your parishioners. Really? Like, we will really increase your parishioners. And I'm like, I don't give a shit about <laughs> increasing my parishioners. Like, I don't need to look out and see way more people. I would like to see more people dedicated to the gospel of Jesus. Right. right. And if Flocknote is going to help me to do that, praise God. But like there is a way in which, you know, hearing that, it's like these are just the numbers for the Catholics. As pastor, I am responsible for every soul in my parish boundaries, which includes the Protestants, the Jews, the Muslims, and whatever. Nons. The nons. And if you said, Father, 40% of the people in your parish boundaries have suffered sexual abuse within the last uh, 10 years, or I think it's like 30%, those, that's an actual statistic. That makes me, um, that makes me feel, how, am I doing enough? And at Mass, am I also willing to remember those people as well? Yeah. Not just the Catholics, that it's like, can I get you guys to, to come around and actually become who you're supposed to be but it's like how do i get the rest of these people that when i walk through walmart it's like you are my sons and daughters as well yeah which is which is very sobering and sad yeah and it's a um it's a hard thing right now to be a pastor but I, i i do think that we've created a sacramental machinery that we expect kind of upkeep and people just say, hey, listen, I give this, we get what we want, you know, like we come for this. And, and you guys have to deal with a lot of like complicated situations. But if we could just kind of step outside of the box for a bit and say, okay, 
how would it, what would it look like to mobilize a parish to actually be structured in such a way as to respond to these four different groups, nons, uh, Catholics who become Protestant, especially evangelical, lapsed Catholics, and then practicing Catholics. Like, what do you think that looks like? I have my own thoughts, but it's like, does the parish just serve the practicing Catholic, or is the purpose of the parish to actually facilitate? Because by practicing Catholic, we're under 20%, um, you know, and especially in COVID land. I think it was 24% in, in 2016 was the Pew Report of Catholics who practice, who go to Mass mm-hmm. on Sundays. Um, and uh, I think that the... Uh, so the question I have for you, and I don't mean to like put you on the spot here, but I just, I'm not in the parish. It's like, do you think that a parish priest is... Sir, my job is to serve, in terms of practically, is to serve the practicing Catholics who come, which is, again, maybe 15% right now with COVID, right. 10% um, who are coming to Mass. you know. And they're all in different stages. So uh, we had the good fortune of being able to read uh, Father, or excuse me, uh, oh gosh. Tim Glomkowski. Tim Glomkowski. He's a father. You. He's a father of two, I think. Um Children, um, three. I think they just had their third. They just had their third. Yeah. Well, sorry. I sorry. Think. I don't know. I hope he does listen to this. So this is his job. Just to help us figure this out. So, um, uh, he wrote a book called, uh, oh God, Made for Mission. Made for Mission. You obviously read it closely. Listen, it's the it's the Christmas ale. Thank you. <laughs> um, I told him I needed to eat something before we did podcasting. Um. Made for mission, but he talks about, as you know, because you read the book, right? He talks about these four different categories where persons are coming to church that need to be uh, pre-evangelized, right? Evangelized, catechized, or um, like uh, trained, and then ultimately sent out on mission. And I like that idea that it's like there are different moments in the parish where some people are ready to go right now. Some people need to get ready to go. Some people don't even know where to go, and some people don't even care. Right. And you gotta you gotta meet them all at some point. And then the thing that I thought was so funny was we had a meeting of our of our deanery, all these priests, and they said, "How do you feel like you're doing in terms of pre evangelization?" And everybody went around the room and said, "This is what I'm doing to pre evangelize people. Pre evangelize means can you encounter them just with like persons." hospitality, um, like a basic message of hope without it being the gospel. Right. Not not telling them the good news, but just like, do they feel like this is a place where they could come for resources, whatever? And all these guys said, yes, this is what we're doing, whatever. And I go, I actually don't think we're doing that at all, period. And, and, that, and that's a problem, and that needs to change. And... One of the guys tried to say, oh, Nathan, you're doing a good job. Don't be so hard on yourself. And I'm like, uh, Father Chris, would you agree that we don't do that? And he goes, yep, I would agree with that. Hmm. So I think that there's a point in the life of the church where we have to actually admit, yeah, I'm not doing that. Yeah. Instead of being like, yeah, but I'm doing all these other things. It's like, yeah, I, I, I understand that. Like in his book, Tim talks about, when he encounters people with that question, they're like, yeah, but we have a soup kitchen. We have this. Like, They're like, we're doing all these good things. It's like, I understand that. But in this category, do you feel like you're doing anything? And, I, and personally, I believe that a soup kitchen is a great way to start the conversation with people because it's like at least you have a humanitarian right. focus and people are more apt to listen to a church that loves the poor than... Hey, do you want to hear about Jesus? But we don't really care about right. the immigrant or the unborn or you know the the stranger, etc. No, oh, Tim's book is great, and um, Tim's book called "Made for Mission." Made for Mission available at our Sunday Visitor and Amazon.com. We are uh, we're really thinking and having conversations about this, which is which I think is very exciting. In my little classroom. Um, we talk about this in light of fundamental theology, and I ask them, "What are the what are the touch points, you know, for that pre-evangelization?" Because I, I think a lot of pre-evangelization is it's not so much about um, 
having the right programming. It's more about a mode or a way of being, a way of living. But I, I would like to propose that, um, and, and I think this is complementary to Tim's structure of the different kind of levels or different types of people, but when he's talking about who's showing up at church, that's just kind of a, a portion of it. If we look, if we go back to our religious ed classroom from 20 years ago, five kids, one's a non, one's an evangelical, two are lapsed Catholic, one is maybe practicing. Um, you basically have three different groups of people. And I would like to just propose that we we got to get outside of the box and we got to start thinking. And this is just kind of a contribution to that. But um, when I think about who does the best job of reaching what I would call category number one, the disaffiliated, who are either nons or evangelical, I think of the one and only Father Michael, Michael Lachlan. Lachlan. Yeah. Absolutely hands down the best. And Olo, his style is what I would call um, local evangelization. He's a regular. He o goes, loco. He goes and be, he, he, the O local. He becomes a local at this coffee shop, at this restaurant, yep. at for breakfast, at this restaurant for dinner, at this bar for the evening drink, at this cigar shop. He he just he becomes a local, and the local evangelization is a very slow presence of a priest or anybody who's Catholic. Yeah, uh, but the priest has a particular ability to do this because instead you instead of it being a mile wide and an inch deep he's just going to keep so steady at the same so steady and he's yep. just there day in and day out and so i i think that if i was going to say one model of evangelization that i've learned from olo uh which is really effective is the local evangelization that works for nons and disaffiliated catholics who become other religions mm -hmm. he meets and talks to people um that i would never encounter Agreed. Just because I'm not in the same place at the same time, and I'm not in the world in that way. Yes. So, number one, Olo's need... proximity to illegal drugs <laughs> is um, usually a lot more uh, proximate than I am comfortable with. Yeah. He doesn't take them, but the people that he's around that do, right? Um, you know, I think it's significant, so. especially in L.A. So. So yeah, so that's number one is the first the first category of you want to reach sacramentalized nonverts and sacramentalized converts to evangelicalism or whatever. Figure out where are you a local or become a local if you have the availability. Now Olo, this is what we love about Olo, is that his parish has fifty people. Right. And he has a parochial vicar. Right. You know what I mean? So he's got an amazing ability and an availability, but some people have that. If you're listening to the podcast and you have four kids, you're like, how do I do this? It's like, it's not going to happen. But if you're 25 and you're like Olo in temperament, this this is for you. It's prime. Get out there and just be in the same place. Be steady. Be consistent. Be charitable and be Christ in these places. And you're going you're gonna to encounter all kinds of people right. who have disaffiliated from religion but are working and living and uh, and doing their thing, trying to kind of find their way. Here's the question. I mean, I thought about this too. Um this is also the case for people that are that are from a small town or work in a small town. I think it's harder in a in a larger metropolitan area, which is why I think it's important that you establish connections at the local, you know, diner, you know, wherever. But here's what I was thinking the other day. I don't know if I said this to you or somebody else. Oh, I said it to book. If I got transferred to a to a new town, like a small town, say I went up to Granby, okay? First thing I'd do is I'd go without my collar before I ever set foot in the church. I'd walk in. I know that this is scandalous, so you know, get ready. If you need to tell if you need to tell the kids to close their ears, close their ears. I'd walk in and uh say, um, you know, to the local bar, where does a guy go if he doesn't want to be lonely tonight? And then they would say, you go ask this person. And I'd walk up and I'd say, hey, my name's Father Nathan. I'm the new pastor. I just want to let you know if ever you need anything, I'm here for you. Because once I put my collar on and I, I'm known, they're going to say, well, he'd never come and talk to me. Yeah. So Jesus knew who the tax collectors and prostitutes were. Right. So I think there is a joy in actually saying, is that possible? Because some people would say, that guy came in and the first conversation he had was with the village, mm -hmm. but 
I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Um, I actually wanted to come to my parish um, and inter- and uh, see it beforehand, but we were told you're not allowed to do that. I would have loved to have just pretended that I was a regular dude for you know one or two masses and just said like, oh my gosh, like what do you think about this music? And then later on be like, surprise, I'm the priest. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell everyone what you said. Right. <laughs> I like it. But I need a fake mustache and like... Yeah, you do. Yeah. Kind of a blonde wig, maybe. Yeah. And a fat suit. <laughs> you know, like, so I'm, I look fatter than I already am. Right. So that's the that's the first category. Oh, gosh. We got three more? No, I'll make it quick, I promise. <laughs> this Christmas ale is really some, strong. No, I've got some water. I'm fine. Why don't you get some Cheez-Its upstairs and, you know, slow it down? <laughs> if only we had the right kind. We do have the right kind. We talked about that this morning. Can we move it was on? A bit of a pro- <laughs> we move on. I'm fine. I just want you to keep going through your topic. It's only at 40 minutes. I got five more minutes, and then, then we're calling it. So, the first the first topic is that we covered already was just being a local and evangelizing in your place. Olo, you're a great model for that. The second one, so that covers nons and and switchers, right? So sacramentalized nonverts, they become non, they disaffiliate from any religion whatsoever, which is, again, one in four Americans, but now 50% of Catholics under the age of 30. Devastating, huge numbers. We have to respond to that. Become local, uh, touchstones of where you are. Number two, two of the five kids in the religious education class are going to become lapsed Catholics. There are certain moments when we can grab and build relationships with them, but they're not going to come to church and they're not going to call the parish secretary and fill out paperwork for marriage preparation. Good point. So what I call this is freelance evangelization. The first one is local. You're just in your place. You're just doing your thing. It's very rudimentary. It's very pre-evangelization. The second one is, is freelance, which is to say you're friends with Callie and Luke. They have friends who are fallen away Catholics. They get you in touch with them. You go out for a beer with them. You talk to them about the faith. You don't water it down. You just say, "This is what we do." I don't yeah. work. I don't work on on commission. Commission, but I'm I'm committed to you, and I'll support you, and I'll and I'll and I'll and and I think that RCA and marriage preparation are the two big touch points for these lapsed Catholics, people mm-hmm. who didn't get confirmed, or people who are like, "I want to give it one more shot at the church um, and reach out." But we got to get out of the parish in order to do that, because two of the five are. This is a this is a really great opportunity, and we don't just have to say, "Well, they're all gone." It's only under ten percent now. We have no no hope for bringing them back. It's like no, they they'll come back, but they need a real human touch. And it and it, I just think a lot. You can get a lot done in two hours at a brewery that you can't uh, you can't do that in a parish office because mm-hmm. they're on they're in enemy territory as soon as they step onto the parish grounds. You meet them outside. Right. You go to a coffee yep. shop. You go to a bar. Uh, you talk about these things. Yeah, they're living together. Yeah, they're not practicing the faith. Yeah, I mean, but I have had uh, three or four couples this fall that I've met through other people, and it's been totally disconnected from parochial structures. Right. And I've been amazed with the progress I can make just by hanging with them. And sometimes you got to talk about whatever you're talking about. You talk about Alabama football. You talk about Switzerland. You talk about what kind of Cheez-Its are the best, which are obviously extra toasty, but some people buy... Buffalo Ranch. Buffalo Ranch, and it causes tension. But that's you work the, through it. You work through it. So yeah. you get this, but, but we, we do this. You do that. I do that. Uh, Larkin does that. Wunsch does that. And, and I just I think we need to encourage people. I would say I do that very infrequently. I don't meet a whole lot of people that are uh, are non-verts. Like the, not non-verts, but like the... The fallen away Catholics or the non-practicing Catholics that are like, yeah, I'd be willing to talk to you. Um, most of the time, like once you put on the pastor hat, like they know, like it's the boss. I'm man. talking to the district manager, and I can't <laughs> say to the district manager, your church sucks because of these reasons. Yeah. And as much as I tell them, I'm like, be totally honest. Now, when I go to certain parties and I meet those people, oh my gosh, I have a blast just asking them questions and being like, so what do you think about this? Why don't you go to church? What was your experience the last time you went to went to mass? I see a lot of those people in the sacramental moment, namely funerals. Yeah, That's when I meet the people 
that are not practicing their faith. And uh, I try to encourage them to to reach out. I should probably do a better job of being like, I'd be happy to go out for a drink with you. I will probably eat before I go out to drink with you so that I don't slur my words. <laughs> I think you're doing it um, a lot more than you think you are. But it's very difficult as a pastor to do it. And we have to be honest about that, is that your life is so weighed down by administration that it's hard to be with the people. But when you're out there, when you're at a party with somebody, um, you're going to be doing that. So, oh my gosh. What? More mail. <laughs> I just found it. Shoot. Okay, yeah. Anyways, that's all I wanted to say. What do I do for the people that are practicing their faith? Keep doing- these, are the, these are the people that want me to come to their house for dinner. Right. These are the people that want me to come over to their house to bless, you know, like their their unborn baby, their house, their kids. Um, they want to brew beer together. They want to do all these things. And it's like, I only have so much time. Right. I wish that they would actually say, Father, we're going to invite five families over to our house and we're going to have you over for dinner. Right. I would love to get a squadron together to actually, yeah. you know, pray together, to have a meal together, but it's like everybody wants to have their own individual time with Father Nathan. Right. And I'm like I, I'm I feel like a I feel like what was the name of that the Newfie at the at the Craig Hospital? Oh, uh, Newfie Mondays? Yeah, so yeah. just a dog that like comes in and everybody just <laughs> therapy dog. Therapy dog and yeah. it's like, "Oh, come to my house and we'll pet you and, you know, it'll be so great." And then I'll leave and it's like Oh, wasn't it nice that we had Father Nathan over? Like, I wish that I had Father Leone's zeal where it's like I could ask them questions and be like, why aren't you guys loving each other to the point where you can't imagine life without each other? Yeah. Like, I look at sometimes my my limited availability with my parishioners, and I'm like, did I change anything in their life, or did we just have a good time for right. an hour and a half? Yeah. It's a huge question. I don't know what to say. Um but I think if people start to shift this this outward mentality and say, um, you know, because it's not just priests who have to do this, be locals and be uh, freelancing. We gotta we gotta start connecting things. But I know for you, if it would if it wasn't just one more dinner at somebody's house, just so they feel really good that they had father over, but it was more of, hey, uh, we we want you to meet these people because they're asking quite they're asking the right questions. I know you'd be excited about that. So. That we got to change the culture. It's time to change the game, folks. And uh, I don't know. I hope Tim Klimkowski and Brenda Canella and you can give us some leadership on this. But there's some numbers thrown at you. It's good. To, it's good to look at this. It's good to think about this. We don't have to have the answers today, but uh, do write us because uh, we appreciate hearing from people. You're shaking everybody, your head. Everybody's texting me right now because they're like, "We just heard that Father Considine has COVID." Oh, and I'm like. That's not true. Like, if by the time this podcast comes out and I'm dead because I died of COVID, just know, like... It was a good run. I always prefer Buffalo Ranch Cheez-Its <laughs> to Extra Toasty Cheez-Its. <laughs> Write it on my tombstone. This is Father Nathan Goebel signing that's off. Your final, and I don't that's your want, final word. And I don't want you to send a crap ton of... Um, uh, I'm not. I don't want you to send a crap ton of Buffalo Ranch Cheez-Its. I just want it to be known in my household we will serve the Lord and Buffalo Ranch Cheez-Its. Oh, all right. Good night. I'm so done. I, there's a chance that we might not even be able to celebrate Christmas Mass. Yeah, we um, we've been. We didn't talk about that, but Father, COVID has gotten very close to us and in some disturbing ways. Times. And. We've been laying low here, and that's why we're fighting about Cheez-Its, because right. we just want to make it through Christmas. So. Yeah, and I want to thank publicly Mary Volcani, who was the only person that heard that we were sick and offered her assistance, and she brought over a whole box of booze for our for our uh, quarantine. She brought us Manhattans, uh, stuff to make Manhattans, which included almond extract, Almond extract and Cointro. Did you see this? Yeah, she recommended. Oh yeah, she sp- found she found it all. Anyways, so uh, we're spoiled, and we might be dead. So this is Catholic stuff. One last word, you know, because we should give a final word every single time. We always thought we were better than everybody else, 
and maybe we weren't, <laughs> but in heaven, we're going to realize we were awesome. So take that. Take that, whatever it's called, like the naked podcast that beats us on, um, you know, iTunes rating, ratings. Forget you. <laughs> That's what I want to say. Uh, All right. Happy New Year, folks. We're calling it. <laughs> so done with this. Ah. All right. All right. Hey, proud of everyone. Be a local. <laughs> Just. I'm going to scream. Literally, I'm getting text after text. We heard that you're sick. I'm sorry. You're looking at your phone. Oh, All right. Hey, that's it. We're calling I thought we were going to read a letter. Uh, I'm going to read this letter next time. Oh, okay. Let's just call it here. We're at 50 minutes. So, Catholic no, stuff. Let me, give me, let me give my shout out. All right. Get your shout out. I know you're at the point where it's just like, ah, oh, giggle, giggle. <laughs> but, like, I want to I say one more thing. It's not going to be a drunken slur. <laughs> it's going to be fine. Good night. Uh, I just want to cross this off my list to Dan and Renee Huey, uh, who are uh, Presbyterians from Seattle, and they have a retreat house. Uh, greetings from Sister Alicia and Sister Kate. Um, to our friends in, uh, in, at St. Pat's in Pasco, Ireland, because uh, I know that priest listened. Uh, to all the haters out there, um, you know, whatever. Whatever. Whatever, man. Whatever, man. Catholic Stuff Podcast at gmail.com. Check us out on Facebook, which apparently hates our guts now because we stand for something. So if we're on a different medium uh, because Facebook pushed us off, uh, I don't care. Because seriously, like we I got know. we got a information the other day that Facebook's telling us that yeah. if we don't cease and desist on our proclamation of the gospel, that um, yeah, the woke police are after us again. So. Mark Zuckerberg, if I find out where you live, you're going to get a flaming bag of poo. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's it, folks. We're calling it Happy New Year. We'll see you. Merry Christmas. Week. Goodbye.